for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. You know, I've been wondering, what good's a pop-up dinner anyway? What do they accomplish? Other than generating buzz and inspiring Instagram likes. Publicists love them, so do trend surfers. Pop-ups are really advertising tools disguised as dinners. But don't the best pop-ups promise more than that? I mean, they promise narratives. And I think the most interesting pop-ups right now focus on questions of identity. If you dig into a menu or listen to a server, you start to understand that chefs are trying to tell you a story. I get that. They're trying to tell a story about where they're from and about where they're headed. And about who they are. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. We're your host for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories of the changing American South. In this episode, Irina Zhurov takes us to a pop-up dinner tackling big issues along with ambitious courses. It's 5 o'clock and preparations are in full swing for a 6 p.m. pop-up dinner in downtown Charlotte. Ashley Nightingale is prepping her bok choy slaw. And then it's going to go with my arancini and I have a wonderful, beautiful minced barbecue lamb shoulder. Nearby, Whitney Thomas is getting ready for the night. I prepped all ahead of time, so I have all my sauces made, other little accoutrements to go with the plate. So right now I'm just kind of getting staged out, so when it's time to go, I'm ready to go. Jamie Turner is using a tape measure to cut up a sheet of her ginger cake. Everything has to be exact, and our lines always have to be straight. Other chefs mill about the kitchen, laying out ingredients, chopping, mixing, sautéing. They're all women, and they're all African-American. I've never heard of such an event where you have nine African-American women cooking together, fine dining, super high-level food. I mean, I have goosebumps just thinking about it. Most of the women have spent their careers in kitchens where they were the only woman and the only black person. There's palpable awe in the kitchen, kind of giddiness. The women are laughing and joking, but they're also sharing horror stories from their time in other kitchens. Derogatory jokes said in my presence, you know, being the only black person in the room and the only woman, and a joke that directly talked down about black women, like, and then everyone laughed and there was nothing done about it. He just had to apologize to me over a cigarette break. Every woman here has tribulations to share. Tell the reporter about your deal, the women say to Ashley, as she works her sloth. Yes, I work for a private school. I run a kitchen. I cook breakfast, lunch, and snack, mostly from scratch, and gluten-free and allergy menus, and washed all the dishes for 100 plus people, put everything up and served, and did all the shopping. Just recently, they hired a guy to help her, she says. But they treat the dishwasher better than they treat the chef. I don't break 40000 and my benefits suck. Like, and I've literally been told, like, you, you should be lucky you have a job. And it's not like her current workplace is unique, she says. I watch men walk into a kitchen and make 3 or $4 more with less skills than I have. 
and it's crazy, but it's true. <laughs> it's crazy, but it's true. <laughs> Here, the chefs are on equal footing. They've turned on some Erica Badu, and they've relaxed into this most uncommon kitchen, where their identity is not a hindrance, but the norm. This pop-up dinner center is black women. It's put on by Soul Food Sessions, a group that organizes pop-up dinners in the South and beyond featuring chefs of color. They also provide scholarships to aspiring chefs. Jamie with a tape measure is one of the group's five founders. Around the South, other pop-ups have trained their eyes on other groups. There's the Brown in the South series, which focuses on chefs of South Asian ancestry. Chef Tunde Way's meals make diners confront racial inequities. Parties by the Mosquito Supper Club celebrate Louisiana shrimpers and fishermen. Mike Costello's cooking explores what it means to be Appalachian. Chefs and diners alike are looking at and confronting identity over food. Another Soul Food Sessions co-founder, Greg Collier, says his team's initial idea was simple. So it started just because we wanted to cook together. He's executive chef at Loft and Cellar and owns a breakfast place called The Yoke in Charlotte. He says he's worked a lot of jobs and done a lot of events where he was the only black chef, and he just got tired of it. This would be different. Like, just a moment for us to be in the kitchen and be loved and just share in this thing. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very selfish element to it. Just I just want to cook with other black chefs. In other words, it's great to serve diners and introduce them to the Soul Food Sessions mission. But these events are in large part for the chefs. Marwan Irani says so as well. He's one of the founders of the Brown in the South series and owner of Chai Pani, an Indian street food-inspired restaurant with locations in Asheville, North Carolina, and Decatur, Georgia. Quick disclaimer, the SFA receives proceeds from the Brown in the South dinners. Marwan was born in London, grew up in the state of Maharashtra in west-central India, moved to California, and finally settled in Asheville nearly 15 years ago. For a long time, he thought of himself as an Indian who happened to be living in the South. The dinners started in 2018 as a way for him and his co-founders to re-examine that. The idea was let's get ourselves cooking in a kitchen together and talking and come up with a way to present ourselves actively as, hey, we're Southerners, we live here, and we happen to be from in, of Indian origin, and we want to present to you what food looks like from a Southerner that happens to be from India. So far, there have been two Brown in the South dinners, one in Decatur and one in Nashville. The menus were intentionally designed to spark conversation and question what it means to be Southern. For example, they served sweet tea. Neither tea nor sugar are actually from the South. They were both came with immigrants from other parts of the world. And yet they've evolved and become accepted and integrated into what we think of this very Southern thing. That got diners talking, but it made Marwan wonder something too. Could he, like they imported tea, become quintessentially Southern? I'm actively owning it, claiming it, warts and all, and saying to myself, this is where I live now. The dinners, he says, gave him, finally, a sense of identity and helped him figure out his place in the evolving South. I'm kind of doing it not just for myself, but for my daughter, who is growing up in the South. I mean, she was two years old when we moved here. And as far as she's concerned, she's Southern. I mean, she has grown up in Asheville, North Carolina, has more of a connection with this place and where she's growing up here than she does really with India, even though we visit every year. 
Another issue mission-driven pop-ups like Soul Food Sessions aim to address is the fact that there aren't that many people of color, and even fewer women of color, in positions of power in restaurants. The Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that nationally, just 22% of chefs or head cooks are women. Only 17% of head chefs are black. Whitney Thomas, chef de cuisine at Five Church in Uptown Charlotte, says she sees that in her day-to-day. Visibility is when you can go around town and see a black executive chef or a black woman executive chef. You don't have that here in Charlotte. Whitney is one of the women cooking tonight. She says the lack of representation is discouraging. I feel like a big part of, you know, moving up is having that mentorship, having somebody that you can look up to, and you don't really have that. In her current position, she's in charge of hiring in the kitchen. One thing I don't do is I don't judge a book by its cover. I, I'm open to anybody. You know, I have a soft spot for people who have stories of overcoming, you know, people who have worked hard. I try to really foster those people um, when I hire. Whitney is sauteing mushrooms for one of the other chefs to help out. Nearby, Ashley's wrapping up her prep, and Jamie is beaming. It feels warm, calm, controlled, versus loud. (laughs) Yeah, different conversations, softer voices, mellow music. Yeah, I like it. Kitchens are social places, and as in many workplaces, relationships, as much as knife skills, help people move up in restaurant hierarchies. Greg says networking is a big piece of these dinners. He says when he was working in kitchens as the only African-American cook, it was harder to network. When I wanted to go maybe to, let's say, a neo-soul show, everybody else wanted to go to a rock show. And I'm not saying that you can't cross those lines as far as music goes. It just was different. So when... Chef says, let's go to the bar and drink. I can't even think of the shots now. What's the green licorice liquor? Jägermeister. <laughs> so I was like, "That's what? I don't even know what that is. And I tasted it and it was bad to me. And, but that was the thing the chef was doing. He was going out hanging with the crew like this. So while the chef was building relationships with the other people in the kitchen, Greg would sit it out. So when I work two years at a place and somebody else worked two years at a place and the conversation is, okay, why should we pick you over him? And if our, if, if our skill set is the same, I'm going to lose just because the chef knows him better and the chef more, is more comfortable with him or her. He's not saying a kitchen run by a black chef would necessarily work otherwise. It would just make room for more black chefs. It's not like white chefs network differently than Korean chefs network differently than black chefs. The reality is there are more white men running kitchens. So the networking is more white male dominant. Greg says many of the chefs have gotten media attention after participating in a dinner. At least one woman got a new job after doing an event. Bring it in, guys. Let's bring it in. In the kitchen, Jamie prepares everyone for go time. I want to thank everybody for being here today. This is awesome. You all are doing a great job. The plates look beautiful. Now let's execute. Let's make sure every, every plate is hot, you know what I'm saying? Every plate is beautiful. It's, I'm about to cry. I won't mess up my makeup, but I just want to thank you. I want to thank you all. We are making history tonight, and we couldn't have a better crew here today. Then it's right back to work. The women huddle around a sea of plates, arranging the first course. Who plate wipers? 
And just like that, a ballet of servers, elegant and all black, carry the first plates up the stairs and to the diners. Hey, this is John T. Back with Gravy co-host Melissa. It's not all about the chefs, about what they need to say and how they need to be heard. It's got to be a little bit about the diner, right? And what they take away from a meal where identity is center of the plate. Up next, Irina tells us what's in it for the diners. But first... Simmons Catfish is a family-owned business that calls the Mississippi Delta home. The company is committed to quality catfish and, most importantly, to its employees. My name is Maria Esparza and I've been here 20 years at Simmons. I was born in Mexico, but I was raised in West Laco, Texas. When I was 19, they brought us over here to Simmons on a working contract, and I haven't went nowhere since then. Maria works as a strip table supervisor, cutting fish at the Simmons Processing Plant in Yazoo City, the same Delta town that gave us author Willie Morris. The Simmons Company recently honored her 20 years of service. Simmons marked her anniversary with a gift of a living room set, a dining room set, and more. She recalls the celebration fondly. Our people from the plant, they gave me some presents. I mean, it just felt good. They all got up, applause. It's just feeling good that you do for them and they do for you and they love you. I mean, like I said, this is family right here. We didn't go nowhere. You ain't gonna find another job like this. The next time you crave catfish, baked, fried, or in a stew, look for Simmons Farm Raised Catfish, a driver of the Delta economy, an employer with integrity, the home of Willie Morris and Maria Esparza. A list of vendors is online at SimmonsCatfish.com. For their commitment to quality catfish, their belief in their employees, and their support of this podcast, we thank them. The dining room is filled to capacity, about 70 diners in all. 90s R&B is playing and drinks are flowing. Coasters with pointed conversation starters dat the tables. For example... What is white privilege? But people aren't really taking them up yet. Um, we started with the champagne, and then we'll get to the conversation later. <laughs> Yvonne Bennett is here for the food. But also, this is personal. She's an African-American woman, and she leads diversity and inclusion efforts for a global manufacturing company. It's very real when we talk about parity for women in multiple industries, and what are the paths to parity? Giving women exposure, giving women opportunities to show that their skill, their craft, is uh, equal and oftentimes better than that of their male counterparts. So we have to create these spaces. A table over, Katie Webb is waiting for the next course with her young daughter. I'm here because my daughter is six and black and she loves to cook and I wanted her to see that she can, you know, do that, that she can be in the culinary field and um, just introduce her to some great food. She wants her daughter to see black excellence. Ultimately, what these identity dinners aim to do is change narratives. A lot of the chefs cooking tonight said they had to fight against stereotypes at work that women couldn't pull their weight in the kitchen or that they could only make pretty salads. Greg fought other assumptions. I think that there's a stigma that comes with certain chefs. Black chefs are usually deemed lazy or they have an attitude problem. That means when he walks in for a job interview, he may be starting in the hole. 
as much as people say I don't see color, I'm 6'4", 330. I'm a big black guy. You cannot see that. If you have a an example of the black chef you work with, you're gonna think about me like him. But because you have so many examples of the white chef that you work with, the white chef that walks in the door could be anybody. But for me, they're looking at me like the one black guy that worked in the kitchen. Hopefully he was good. If he was good, I'm cool. But if he was bad, all of those things are reflected upon at me because the group that they're pulling from for me is so small. By organizing dinners where all the chefs are black, the Soul Food Sessions founders are hoping other chefs and diners have a wider berth of associations to choose from when they see someone black in the kitchen. Not all such dinners focus on race or ethnicity. West Virginia's Mike Costello from the Lost Creek Farm Traveling Kitchen is concerned with place-based identity and weaving a new account of Appalachia for his diners. He says growing up, Appalachia was kind of a dirty word. There was this association of shame and desperation that, you know, once existed and sort of felt like those associations were still there. He tries to change those perceptions in his guests by focusing on Appalachian ingredients, recipes, and storytelling. You know, we put down a plate and with each course, uh, I go out and I talk about the food that's in front of them as they're eating. If they're serving chow chow, he might say, You don't have to be ashamed that you ate chow chow growing up. You know, you should be really proud of it because that says something about how sort of ingenious your family was and how resourceful your family was and how innovative they were to, you know, to sort of be able to create something absolutely beautiful and delicious out of very few resources. Sitting at long community tables, eating beautiful meals, Mike says diners start to reconsider the version of Appalachia they grew up with. A sense of pride might replace whatever animus they may have held for Appalachia. That pride to me is just so important because if we're going to embrace anything that's place-based, whether it's around food or economic transition or, you know, other kind of development initiatives, trying to sort of harness what we have here uh, rather than trying to fabricate something that we think exists somewhere else, we have to be proud of it. And that storytelling is such an important tool to, to kind of get us there. At these dinners, great food matters. But it's about more than that. The chefs who organize these identity dinners are looking to fix bigger problems in their respective communities, in our world, to feed chefs and diners souls as well as their palates. Downstairs, Jamie is ushering Ashley's course out of the kitchen. I'm really excited that these balls are going to come out hot. We just timed it just right. By the time Ashley makes it up the stairs to the dining room to take a bow, the guests are cleaning their plates. It's Megan! Hello, everyone! Ashley takes a breath and tells the crowd about her plate. So I slow-roasted the lamb legs for about eight hours in uh, pomegranate molasses, and then I mixed it in with couscous, and then I did a green apple slaw with uh, bok choy and pomegranate seeds. Ashley looks around, then heads back into the kitchen to help the others. Today, Gravy was reported and produced by Irina Zoroff of Boone, North Carolina. John T., who do we need to thank? We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music, 
Managing Editor for Grady and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Laster serves as our publisher. And audio engineer Charlie Kyer makes the show sound good. Visit southernfoodways.org to read Lagos or Bust, a profile of Tunde Way's dinner series, and A New Normal South, a profile of the chefs who stage Brown in the South throughout the region. And while you're there, watch The South I Love, a portrait of Vishwesh Bhatt, one of the movers and shakers behind Brown in the South. You gotta watch this shake. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us ladle gravy in your ears. Mm -hmm.